Welcome to Market Proof Marketing, the podcast from the Marketing Minds at DoYouConvert.com, where we talk about the current state of all things digital and how they impact home builders and developers around the globe. We're not here to sell you. We're here to help you and to try and elevate the conversation. I'm Kevin Oakley, and with me today, as always, is the ad doctor, Andrew Peak. We are here in episode 89, and Jackie is with us this week. Yay. Hi, everyone. So exciting. Always Good to have you on with us, Jackie. Oh, yeah. I love being on with you guys. Let's hop right into story time. And I'm going to just warn you right now, I'm, I'm feeling it. I'm, I'm going to come with some energy on mine. Ooh. I posted a, not an article, but a, I, just, I just threw something up. I actually uh, wrote it while in uh, the bathtub. There you go hmm. for that. So in about two minutes, I just cranked <laughs> out this thing that was stuck in my brain That's and threw it out there. On your phone or did you have a tablet that this like that I need to clarify first? Was it just on your phone? Um, on my phone, yeah. Okay. The tablet is is sitting on the side streaming CNBC. In, in Perfect. The same Perfect. time. Yeah. Set up. Kids are asleep. Good. Yeah. yeah. So I just I cranked this thing out without much thought. And as usual, the things that you put little thought into and just kind of flows become sometimes the things that get the most interaction. It's just the way it, it goes. It does. And so I just wanted to add some clarification to it. If you haven't, if you haven't seen it, you can go to LinkedIn.com, look at look it up and, and read it there. The title is Everyone is Killing It Right Now. And basically just talking about how good the market is and and some some problems that, that can create. And I just thought because of how many people have seen that and some interactions that I've had where people are curious about the perspective, I'd give a little bit more insight into that. So the main point, the thing that was driving me to create this post was the line in there where I said that right now is what a what a great market where everyone's killing it is not good for is it's not great for taking advice from other builders or researching them for inspiration. And this is really, again, the main thing that was causing mm. me to drive it because I mentioned this, we saw this a little bit at the Builder Show this year where people were getting up and talking about things that we've already know don't work or are not as efficient or effective as other things that you could be doing. Mm-hmm. And yet because the market is so good right now, they're able to point to a given metric and say, look, like we did this thing that's actually not the best idea at all, but look what came of it. And that's, we, we already saw it at the Builder Show. And then I saw that continuing in different places online where people were giving advice based upon a recent reaction to something they tried, where literally almost anything you tried would have produced a decent sounding reaction in terms of. Uh, any given metric that they happen to pick. And so while we always encourage having a friend, you know, like phone a friend, you want to make sure you have other builders you're connected with in non-competing markets that you can bounce ideas off of. Right now, it's a little bit more scary to do that because someone could be giving you advice sincerely that they think this is is a good thing to always be doing and it's not. So that's where the the main point of that article was coming from. I could throw it into some buckets. Like if you're in Washington State, California, Texas, Toronto, or Vancouver, it's not that what you're doing is wrong by default, but you giving advice to a builder in Iowa or Tennessee or Ohio or or Kansas, that's a completely different environment right now Mm -hmm. in terms of the heat in those markets. Yeah. And well, what may work for someone, depending on I mean, so many different factors. That's going to play a huge role in that too. Yeah, exactly. And like one example, which is just, it's crazy. And part of the reason why I'm so jazzed up is um, just had an interaction with someone uh, who reached out to Do You Convert and was asking about some insight into chat and messaging. We, do, we don't work with this individual person. 
And they were being quoted and or sold slash recommended to purchase a chat solution, messaging solution for $200,000, over $200,000 in expense for one year. Insane. Just the that platform. Is just, like, just the platform. Here's the something thing. that like this builder should probably pay ten dollars to $15,000 tops for for the year or so. And yet, you know, I'm sure there's a case study or some example where, look, this thing would be worth that much money, but that doesn't mean you have to pay that much money. You know, mm. you can pay 10 to 15 and do it way more efficiently with probably the same or better results. Like it just doesn't, it's absolutely insane. I'd be, I'd be curious too, if getting that type of estimate, if the person that did would think that's high, like if they even knew any better. It's a lot of it too. It's that's like, my point is it's, if you don't have a really good handle and I'm glad they reached out, yeah. you might be, you know, you, you see a case study or an example of another builder who used this tool and how well mm-hmm. it worked for them. And that goes back to my point of, but even something completely different might've gotten very similar numbers mm-hmm. now. So as soon as I say all this, I have to pause and say, what I'm also not saying is that everyone who has good results right now is because the market's just, it's going to take care of all sins. Mm-hmm. So the year over year increase in terms, like if you look at Google Trends, it's up slightly. But those who have the right systems, processes, and procedures in place are seeing a greater or better rise or are able to take full advantage of the entire stack. Like they don't just have high lead volumes. They also have higher walk-in traffic. They also have higher appointments and they also have higher sales. Whereas a lot of people, when, when they see me say, everyone's killing it right now, you should be killing it in leads overall between all forms, online, uh, on-site, phone calls, text messages, everything. Leads should not be a problem right now overall. But that doesn't mean that you know if you're seeing growth, that it's not because you didn't make the right kind of changes, especially if you were already seeing the impact of those changes last June, July, August, right? If you were already seeing an increased amount of engagements, activity, and leads, and then that continues to a greater extent in Q1 of 2020, then that's telling you it's not just the market on its own. So there are still people who are seeing good results and killing it because of the work they put in. I'm not saying that it's just the market for everyone. Okay, the last point before I faint. Last point. And then I have to too many things. for you. Okay, yeah. Let's let, give me a chance to take a drink of my coffee while you're asking <laughs> it. This is another really important piece is that those who are not killing it right now, so some people reached out and were like, thanks for nothing, Kevin. Like you, you just made my job even harder. <laughs> Didn't need to post Torture. that because we're not necessarily killing it. Okay. You are still killing it in my mind if you fall into one of the next two categories of people. So f- for those who are not killing it, you're going to be split into two categories. Those who know why they are not killing it and those who have no idea. And okay. again, this goes back to my overall point is those who know why they are not killing it, For example, we've got an amazing amount of leads, traffic, appointments, and no sales. Okay, well, you probably know what needs to be worked on the most to improve that, right? Because you have appointments on site, you know those objections, you know what what the salespeople are Mm -hmm. reacting with. You just, you have more data, you have a process to analyze it and, and know what's working and what's not. Whereas those who don't, for example, those who don't have a call tracking platform in place, and if you're struggling to figure out why, why your digital marketing efforts or marketing efforts in general aren't as effective, but you also have no way of knowing that you know, call volume to a certain sales office went up by 50% over the last 30 days, that 
if, if you don't have a way to know why, going back to episode four of the podcast, go back and listen to that, struggling community analysis, you've got to be able to know why you're not killing it. If, as long as you know why, then you are still, in my mind, killing it because most people are just completely riding the market only. Throwing out crazy numbers again. Talked to someone last week. Their company spends 10% of revenue on, on marketing and advertising. 10%. Ten percent. Yes. How do they, that, that would do be... they make any money? I think. I feel like that's right. uh, well, that's a lot. Yeah. And w- what that means inherently, like I, I'm, I don't really know them yet. We just had one conversation. Is inherently they have no idea. Like they don't know why and why not. I, they just uh, have a general understanding and belief that if we put enough money behind marketing and advertising, it will drive success. Something better because otherwise, style. there's no way the math is telling you. If you looked at it, that you should spend 10%. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a big budget. No matter what size built that, that's crazy. Right. I know I mentioned this before, but again, it's, it's that eBay story just always stuck to me that when you're used to doing something consistently and not kind of playing around with that, you know how they did not change, like they one day took a leap of faith and changed out their, some of their budgeting. It's like, yeah. they, I mean, unless you do that, or even like you, you know, said earlier about if you do have friends in the industry talking to them. So you had a somewhat of a radar with that. Yeah. That's yep. crazy. I would say a, a healthy number, maybe 15% of the folks you work with actually have a lower lead count. Now they're also generally spending less or have significantly changed the way that their website functions. For example, they used to not have pricing on their website and now they do. So we, we know why. Hmm. And it's been intentional, but they have a lower lead count this this January and February than they did last January and February. But they're killing it because their appointment count has doubled from a year ago. So if they had 100 appointments last year, now they've got 200 appointments from a slightly lower or up to one third lower volume of leads. And that's that's my point is killing it is is subjective. If you circle back to why I did it begin with is like a lot of times we want to look at what other people are doing and imitate it. I'm always a little bit leery of that, but in particular right now, you really have to vet when someone says, this is working for me, you should try it too. Did it work before the current market dynamics we're in now? Was it working last January? Was it working during last summer, last fall, for example? Or is it just the new latest thing that someone's retrying again and it didn't work for the last three years, but now because the market's good enough, it seems to be working. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Q and A or no Q and A? Yeah, Q and A. I'll do. I'll do okay. quick Q and A. This will help, I think, for different types of marketers. First question would be for those who feel confident in what they're doing. What What do you think they can do to take advantage of of the market now? Like, should they be spending more? Should they actually be spending less? Like, what is? There, oh yeah, good question. What do you think they should yep. do if they have some flexibility in their budget, which not everyone does? But if they do, should they? Should they not? That's a bad. I, I'm already. I already know some of the answers of it. Well, there are, like, there are definitely people who should be spending less money. Okay. Mm-hmm. With without a doubt, and there I've seen I've seen some messaging going on around there of like this is not the time to cut back on spending. It, not on marketing spending, but on advertising spending, it may be. So, if for example, the market has increased your organic traffic, or or you've been making efforts to increase your organic traffic volume, and that's up 20 percent year over year which by the way, that's where most of your leads are going to show up as a last click attribution method to, then you may not need to spend as much on advertising because it's all about finding that sweet spot of lead volume 
with lead quality combined with how many online salespeople you have available to work with those people well. In terms of flat out ad dollars, yes, there are some people who should be considering spending slightly less and reinvesting that in content or or CX, customer experience, or in researching more about either one of those, Sweet, how to do it well. I like it. And then my next question, phone tracking, what software should they use? Or what? Um, CallRail is still our, our favorite. It's, it's okay. been around for uh, quite a while. It integrates with almost everything. I feel like we did an episode on CallRail already that you could go find if we, you want to listen more about that. For sure, there's blog did. content about it. We tend to talk a little bit about it every year at the summit. At the Online Sales Academy, I know they'll be talking about CallRail. Oh, nice. But even if you don't switch to having it go to a different person, just tracking the volume. Two quick points there. There's some larger regional folks that we work with who have seen increases of like 300% the number of people on a mobile device who are interacting via chat and or the phone as compared to a form completion. So again, wow. this idea of just because website traffic has is the same or slightly lower than last year, if the conversion rate is increasing dramatically, everything still may be fine. But tracking both phone call and text message volume, as well as chats that produce either an email or a phone number from a mobile visitor, all those things, if you don't have that, it is, it is like, I think someone said a, a one-armed drywall hanger. Like it's just, it's <laughs> hard impossible. to put the glue and hang up the drywall at the same time or the, the wallpaper. Yeah. Uh, and it's, wallpaper hanger. And it's yeah. 2020. I mean, I mean, mm-hmm. come on. Some guilt. Got to put out some guilt. Call tracking's been around quite some time. And then my last one, if you're a marketer and you feel as though your marketing is killing it, you have leads, but sales are just not there. Mm-hmm. How would you go about, and it obviously depends on like where they are in their company and culture and like who they know. Oh and no, just this, this one's easy. You how just do say, they know, like, salespeople are, it are stinking me? it up right now. Instead of salespeople. No, no you just... You just blame the salespeople. You say, I don't know. Yeah, a, just shrug. A, I like it. Yeah, just shrug guy. and go, I don't know, okay. salespeople. What are you doing? <laughs> He's new. Of course. Because <laughs> you can go around in a circle true. and like, this is my fault. This is my fault. This is my fault. As far as marketing goes, you're like, I got more leads. It must be the leads. I got to fix it. Especially if you take, if you want that responsibility or you feel like you have to have the responsibility that you could fix mm-hmm. everything, which you cannot fix yeah. everything. Like, Well, I, let's, I, let's break down the word lead to be a little more specific in saying that it doesn't really excite me right now to say you have more leads. No. How about... Um, the appointment, you know, the number of, of online leads yeah. that are scheduling an appointment at there a specific day and time as a result of being a lead is way more important. And notice I said a specific day and time because what I'm not talking about is running paid search, keyword-based searches to a landing page, capturing information, and then later when they walk out on site saying, we caused that. I'm yeah, saying they not cause it. A lead to an online sales individual that sets an appointment. That number should be higher than last year. Gotcha. All these things force you to actually know these numbers because if you don't know how many appointments you had from your leads, you can't troubleshoot any of this. Well, Which I'm I feel like answering your question of if you think you're killing it. Like if, you if think you're, you're going it. around thumping your chest saying my lead count, look at that lead count. But you're well, killing it if you know your appointments. You're not killing too. it if you don't have more appointments. Yep. You don't know your appointments. Okay. Right. Okay, good. Good. I just was thinking of like people could have these questions when you were talking. No more Q&A. I'm done. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I like it. All right. Hop on over to the news from TheVerge.com. Our first article, the FTC is cracking down on influencer marketing on YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. 
uh, calling for a public review of whether endorsement guides are working. Spoiler alert, in my opinion, they are absolutely not working. No. I, this, I, I read this and I'm like, I don't know how you... They want to put the responsibility of influencer ads. They want to put it on the company that's paying for those. But it's, it's okay. I'm like, cool, we need that because like if this person talks about XYZ, are they actually endorsing it or are they getting paid money to endorse it? And I will buy this product based on trusting that person. But I, I just don't know how you, how you police that. Like I it's agree. on us to make sure that person posts what we want. I guess they don't get, I don't know. It's because it's a weird, I don't think there's official transaction, like the way it's set up. It's like, hey, here's some money, like a broker or something. I don't know. You'd almost need this type of escrow I, broker thing to like, hey, once the ad is approved, then you get the money from escrow because yeah. the ad is what it is supposed to be. I, right? do you guys Am I follow, thinking too detailed on it? I, <laughs> no. I follow a handful of the in, different influencers, different, I guess, genres, different, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of influencers I see, I feel like I automatically can sense when a post has some of that advertising background in it. Oh, yeah. And yet I still do not see any type of reiteration in the post about it. So for me, I'd have a hard time like having that trust there, not knowing. It's off of assumption. Sometimes I see different things, hashtag sponsored ad or ad, or you, you always see different things with Yep. It's like, okay, is that your way of being able to say that? Like it's so muddied. Especially what we see a lot is, oh, this is awesome on this article. I'm being remarketed by the company that spends 10% of their revenue. Oh, geez. Um, that's, that's great. Um, there's, there's some of it being spent right now. Uh-huh. One of the examples of how this can get really confusing for consumers is you'll get an influencer who will hop and be like, look at this dress I have, look at these pants I have, this whatever I have that's amazing. And they will mention that the link below yeah. is an affiliate link, meaning they're making money from it. But what they're not saying is that the reason they have that dress to begin with is because they were paid to have that dress. Like mm-hmm. yeah. the whole thing is an ad, plus they have an affiliate link on top of it. Yeah. And so this article talks about Lord and Taylor paid 50 social media influencers to post about a dress on Instagram, but did not require them to disclose that the posts were sponsored. Most likely, most influencers are, are getting better at saying that they're going to make money when you click the link or it is an affiliate link, whether people know what that means or not. But the whole idea here is influencers are a way to gain trust like they always have been. You know, a spokesperson. Mm-hmm. Spokes, spokespeople have always been used to build trust in a brand, trust and attention. And influencers are, are doing that as well. But it, it's just becoming more and more seedy that the way that it's being done. Yes. Even on the sure. influencer side, Jackie, I'm sure you've heard these before where it's like a story and they're like, everyone's been asking me or I've yeah. had too many DMs about this. And I'm because <laughs> Lindsay, my wife, she'll yeah. be, she goes through stories. I think the way she consumes stories is interesting. She just watches them. Like mm-hmm. obviously you watch them, but like she'll just put her phone down and just they're on. And if she, she'll like, okay, I don't like this person anymore. She'll unfollow them. But she has like her, so it's almost like TV mm-hmm. for like 20 minutes. It just sits there. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what are you doing? This is so weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's the same thing. I'm like, I hear that like every day. Everyone's been asking me. I'm like, no, they haven't. <laughs> like she's Exactly. And, you start and then to it ends up being like yeah. the setup that Kevin said, like that affiliate well, link. You also have how a lot of these influencers became influencers is completely questionable. Uh, you know, yeah. so if someone's using fake accounts, fake likes, fake followers, fake reviews, there was, uh, I forget, a couple months ago, there was someone who got paid like, I want to say six figures 
and an influencer deal. And then that came out later that most of the engagements, the clicks, the swipes that were done were from fake accounts to show that mm. this person had more influence than they really did. I mean, I'm not saying any names, but there's, <laughs> there's someone I know. I actually don't know this, this person, but I'm like, this dude's got a million followers on Facebook. There's no, like, and you look it up, right. and like, they're all fake. I'm like, what in the world? Like, but if yeah. you looked at that, you'd be like, wow, this is the guy to go with. Like, well, yeah. he's got a million people that follow him. He's, he must be amazing. Like everything yeah, he said. No, but it goes back to what we were talking about with LinkedIn. It's the same deal. You, you, yeah. You've got to be aware of this. And right now it definitely is buyer beware or user beware of what you're looking at. But this, this kind of just rolls back to me before we move on to the next article is that the builder or someone from the builder should be the influencer. And not 100%. that you're never going to leverage, you know, a local chef or a local designer or, or other things, but long-term, uh, you want to be the one who is the influencer around the topic in your space. Yeah. And there's, um, I have to add on to that. If we talked, when we talked about TikTok or no, that was in the Facebook group. Um, Thais put the article up TikTok and it yep. was Washington Post. It is the, the Washington Post account, but it's a single person that runs it. So that's that person. And I feel like yeah. builders are very quick to say, Hey, it's our OSC. In my mind, I'm like, they're so busy. Like, why is it have to be the OSC all the time? Like that has to be the face doing all that stuff. Like they're busy all the time. And maybe they want to be, that's their personality, but I don't think that should be the immediate, make that person do it because like they like talking to a lot of people. Because right now they should have a ton of leads that they're responding to. There's always that's, that balance yeah, of how I mean. much do we put our online salesperson out there or have them go off site to make videos versus handle the the job to be done. And so you're absolutely right. It doesn't have to be. I feel like it should be almost another person who's yeah. like 10 hours a week. They're, they're the, the face, the person, and they could of course highlight their, the OSC, but. I don't yep. know. I'm just thinking yep. out loud. Okay. Uh, uh, next one is, is a neural alert article from marketingland.com. We grabbed it because it was written by the, the one, one, the only Andrew Garberson, uh, who has been at the online summit. Uh, one of our favorites in four the years digital in a row, marketing. I think four years or three uh, years. Lo- enough. Like enough. he's, he's my yeah. brother from another mother. I, I worked with him when I was at Heartland uh, in Pittsburgh Good. since 2009, I think. He might have been born like 2006. He's pretty young. Or <laughs> looks, looks young. But, um, yeah. great, great guy. And he wrote he an, an amazing article that continues a theme that we feel like is really important. People understand called the state of tracking and data privacy in 2020. And basically he jumps right in by saying that January 2020 felt like a turning point because the California Consumer Protection Act went into effect. We talked about that briefly. We have a piece on that on the website. Google Chrome became the latest browser to commit to a cookie-less future. And after months of analytic folks sounding the alarm, digital marketers sobered to a vision of the future that looks quite different than today. Meaning this goal of tracking Sam Smith from every interaction in that entire journey, all the way through to the CRM purchase, options selected, closed, buyer is going to get tougher and tougher and tougher. And this obsession with last click attribution in particular is, is causing some people to kind of, their heads are swiveling as the transparency lessens as, as time time continues. And he breaks down a ton of good reasons for that, including a, a brief technical history of web tracking in general. If you're like, what is what are we talking about? I like cookies, but I thought that was something we ate. Yeah. <laughs> uh, breaking down first-party cookies from third-party cookies, which we've attempted to explain before. You know, basically, first-party is only from one particular site 
And a third-party cookie references and interacts with multiple domains or URLs. And how third parties are going away, all the different drivers causing it. But at the end of the day, you know, it is driving down to a couple of things that a lack of clarity is causing some people just to freeze and continue their current efforts because they just don't know what else to do. It's causing some marketers to kind of knee-jerk react to different pieces. And there is no end in sight in how much of this is... It's, it's not slowing down. Um, it's only like mm-hmm. to get worse. And one example that he talks about in the article, Super Nerd Alert, ITP, which is Intelligent Tracking Prevention, in 2017 started started helping control this privacy concern by saying, hey, you only get seven days of time from the time that cookie from a third party or first party is used seven days before it gets reset. So if, if Andrew went on the site, came back five days later, we'd still know that it was Andrew's device that was coming back. Mm-hmm. Well, n- now they're changing it to capping all client side cookies, cookies on a device, not on the server are, not, are going to be capped at 24 hours. That means if Andrew visits the site on Monday and returns on Wednesday, they're going to be considered a new device again. Wow. So that's just an example of why this is, this is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. And in particular, one of the things he highlights, which I thought would be interesting for us to chat about, is remarketing. Its impact on, on how you remarket to people. If your window yeah. of time to know exactly who they are is only 24 hours, Yikes. That, that could look very different than it looks right now. Mm-hmm. So. There are, there are no answers, but a lot of good questions and things to, to think through from Andrew's article and definitely recommended reading uh, for next time. You get a few extra minutes. Yeah, that's a fun one. All right, that'll do it for the news. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, the 360 topic of the week, a marketer's career journey with Lauren Spammer, one of the more fun interviews we've had because you know we've had lots of great guests from outside the industry, but it's always great to go back in and talk to uh, someone who's gone through their own career journey in new homes and a marketer who's grown through the ranks to become a leader of their organization. We'll be right back with Lauren. And we're back with Lauren Spammer, the division president for Charter Homes and Neighborhoods in Central Pennsylvania. Lauren, thanks so much for joining us after many, many months of me pestering you. <laughs> for giving in. Thanks, Kevin, for having me. Very exciting. You, uh, you're, you're a mover and shaker, although I think a lot of people want, might be hearing about you for the first time. They will be surprised to probably to figure out how many mutual people they are connected to you know, that Kevin Bacon game, it's probably not seven degrees. It's probably two from Lauren Spammer. Uh, because you, you've been in this business for a long time, but you've also been in most of that time in a company that generally doesn't interact as much with the outside world as other private builders. And we'll dig into all that. But, but first, talk to everyone about how you got into this business from the beginning. Yeah, fun stuff. So Shockingly enough, I went to the University of Pittsburgh, and when I was looking for a job, one of the top five companies at that point, NVR, uh, which mm-hmm. was Ryan Homes in Pittsburgh, was recruiting on campus. So that's honestly how I fell into the industry. 
uh, started as a, a sales rep right out of school, right where we decided to stay in Pittsburgh and right where we were living and just sort of took a foothold from there. It was one of those things where I didn't know I wanted to be in the industry, but once I was in it, I was like, no, I think this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. So you killed it. Is what you're saying. (laughs) No, not honestly, not really. I mean, it was just, I learned a lot of those first couple of years being a salesperson, you know, you're 22 and you're out of school and you're like, yeah, I'm going to crush life. And then you're kind of like, Oh wait, life is a little bit more interesting than (laughs) I expected it to be. Yeah. And I was absolutely not like the top performer in anything. I was just sort of like middle of the road, but I understood a lot of stuff, had really good access to a lot of people that are still with, you know, some thriving careers in the industry and just was able to sort of absorb a lot of that stuff. The industry was cool. New sales was a place where you could learn a ton, but I knew that wasn't like I wasn't going to be a sales rep for my entire career. I had no idea what I was going to be. And then after a couple of years of doing that, so well, let me back up. When I when I entered into sales, there was I think Ryan had hired fifteen of us at the same time. So that's sort of wow. you know indicative of what the what the industry and the that market was yeah. doing. Uh, we yeah. had a massive training class, and after a couple of years, that started sort of like weaning down. People started leaving um, the company, leaving the industry. And, you know, while it was sort of in the heyday of the market where we were in Pittsburgh, it was never what, you know, the media had talked about. I was never, you know, holding contracts like people were excited when we came in with contracts in the office because that just wasn't what it was there was not like what it was (laughs) in the other areas of the country. So when everyone's like the boom, I'm like, I mean, I was I was working during the boom, but I didn't really experience it like that. Right. A little bit of context for everyone. So NVR has an amazing training program. They're well known for their, their sales training programs. And then the fact that they would hire 15 people in a class is maybe not what they would do everywhere. But in Pittsburgh, especially at that time, where else were you going to get new home salespeople from? There, there's no ability to borrow or steal from other folks. And, and that's NVR's culture anyway, is to develop from, from outside talent coming in and then train them. But in Pittsburgh, especially, it's just, it was, it's always hard. And and the peaks were never there, like you're talking about. So you left uh, the sales position in 2006, which that's what you're saying. If, if you were, if you were selling in Florida or Arizona would be a really strange time to exit <laughs> that career path. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it was a couple of years. I felt like learned a lot. We had made a personal change. My now husband at the time, he was my boyfriend, we decided to move back to central PA and move out of Pittsburgh. So it was just a good break for us where um, I was like, you know, I learned a lot, I'm going to try to do something else. I have to actually left the industry for about a year and then was like, uh, no, I'm going back. So I once we moved back to central PA, I went into pharmaceutical sales for a minute. And I was like, this is not for me, I'm going back into the new home industry. I went back to Ryan Holmes in Central PA. It was actually out of a Baltimore region, but not as uh-huh. a sales rep. I went back as a, a sales administrator when everyone was like, you're crazy. Why aren't you selling for, my, for us? You know, But it was one of those moments where people don't actually usually talk about this. I felt like a step back in my career so I could reassess what I wanted to do was going to be appropriate. And not going back into commission-only sales was going to give me the opportunity to you know, use a skill set that I had, but just, I don't know, figure out what I was going to do next or what I had to learn next. Mm -hmm. So they were gracious enough to take me on, even though I was like 
ridiculously overqualified for the job I was doing and sort of let me wander around. And I had a couple of opportunities that popped up while I was doing that, where I was able to interact with other people in the region and learn online sales before online sales was a thing, do some market research. I mean, it was just a really, I don't, it was just a mishmash of stuff that I did, which Mm -hmm. was sort of cool. And then that sort of led me on my path to, you know, I really like the industry. I've been at a big builder for a really long time, but it's time to get out of big builder land. (laughs) (laughs) So that that was my next goal then. Yeah, it's a black hole. If you don't get out, I mean, that's that's kind of one of the jokes around the industry is if you go to work for any large builder, that if you end up staying for more than four years, you're probably never going to leave just because it becomes it becomes hard. But eventually, Charter came knocking or you went to knock on their door. So take a moment and just give people a quick overview of what Charter Homes and Neighborhoods is about and kind of what makes them unique before we dive into your history there with them. Okay, great. Yeah, so Charter is, it's a, a little bit of a unicorn in that Charter is a home builder, but it, we're also a developer as well. So we do homes and neighborhoods together where typically, you know, a builder is buying lots from a developer and just, you know, super focused on the vertical construction we go the whole way back to the planning of the neighborhood, everything that goes into that, plus the architecture and the vertical construction to create places that you know feel a little bit different than your typical suburban subdivision. Yeah, and I think you're. She just said that very casually. But guys, <laughs> let me tell you, say, very humble. What I think Charter does is they're one of the few companies who doesn't just develop a piece of ground, but internally is creating value adding extra value through the development process. So, you know, you guys do some things while while developing a, a piece of ground that other builders might, especially in the markets you're in, say, I'm not sure if that's necessary. I'm not sure if I'm getting going to get the ROI for that in the next quarter. You guys tend to invest in that development process in a different way from a marketing and branding perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really focused on, you know, the people who live in the neighborhood and it's sort of like an art form, right? A lot of think a lot of people think about design in architecture being a little bit more artistic, but the way that we look at ground and plan neighborhoods and plan sort of the space between the homes is you see it carried throughout the entire company. So while you know we have to make sure it's profitable and all of those sort of things, which is a very hard thing to do when you take things that have been split up over the past you know hundred years between engineering and planning and architecture and townships and try to combine them all to create a place that you can build effectively, efficiently, that looks special, feels special and makes a profit. I mean, it's a little, it's kind of crazy, but we figured out how to do it. So it's kind of fun. You know what I think is is really cool on your homepage. I feel like most builders don't do this. It's instead of a picture of a single home or the kitchen, it is a streetscape of one of your communities. Yeah. There's one, two, three, four, five. I'm like, oh, this is nice. And then the tagline at the top, discover your neighborhood. I'm like, oh, this is nice. This is different. So that I think just what you said is is conveyed straight to the the website too. So if their first experience is yep. going to the web the web page on the homepage, they're like, oh, okay. And then visit the competitor sites. They're like, oh, I'm seeing a kitchen, but this is like me stepping out onto the front porch. This is what I will see three or four times a day as I exit my home. Yeah. For those who are driving along in a car or can't go on the website or aren't 
totally understanding what we're trying to explain. I'm going to, I'm going to try to simplify it, but Lauren, stop me if I'm, if I'm doing it wrong. To me, Charter feels like a master plan community developer who has decided to not sell lots to anyone else. And yes, I said lots. I know they're home sites in the sales <laughs> environment. But in the development stamp, if you ever hear a developer talk about home sites, you've met a true unicorn. Developers use the word lot. So I'm talking to a, to a builder developer here. I'm using the word lot. Forgive me. But that's what I see you as where most master plan builders are, or master plan developers are then pulling in multiple builders in order to, to sell those home sites as quickly as possible. You guys are master plan developers, but you're keeping those home sites to yourself. Yeah, essentially, there's a, there's a couple, unusual. yeah, there's two key points that I want to connect. One, we're much smaller than what you probably are right. familiar with as a master plan. Like most master plans are like 2000 plus acres. Like our neighborhoods mm-hmm. are between 60 and 200 acres. Yep. Um, so on a much smaller scale. And then, yeah, so yeah, we hold the home sites and sell sell them basically to ourselves. Because we think the design in planning has to match the design and architecture for a place to really feel as special as it could. So like all those places that you've probably visited on vacation or um, throughout travel or, you know, visiting other people that, you know, where you walk through like a cool, small old town and you're like, wow, this place really feels different. We have just taken those ideas and figured out how to do it in today's environment. And that's, again, what is so unique is. You, I, I would argue you guys are putting the same amount of effort that someone would put into a 2000 acre master plan community into these smaller ones. You're not, you're not, you're not skimping or, or cutting corners. You know, you're that, what I'm, that's what I'm saying. You're doing things that most people would only associate with those much, much larger projects. Yes. And that really does create an amazing story to tell to consumers who are, really trying to like it's makes it much harder to compare i imagine in the sales process your community to builder x's community on the street which is just the typical they've got a a you know a stone or a brick pillar monument a sign <laughs> hanging on it and that's their amenity <laughs> yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah. It, it it's it's like a it's like we're playing a different game we talk about this in sales training a lot but you know, there's, there's the whole table stakes conversation that you have to have to just be in the industry today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course we have all those things. Of course we have beautiful floor plans. Of, of course we have nice architecture. We're very energy efficient. Uh, we have options for people and great design center selections. Of course, like you have to have that stuff to be in the game, but we're like, we just, we're not even playing in that game anymore. We're just playing a different game because mm-hmm. we think that we can create places that no one else is creating and give people a choice that they didn't know that they had. And that's, that's the interesting thing. You know, we live in a world, Bozilla world, when everybody's been trained to search price per square foot and school district and all those things. And yes, yeah, again, yes, we have to be in the right locations and all that kind of stuff. But we're, we're like, Hey, um, think about a different way that you could live and spend those moments in your day, connecting with people, your friends, your family, your neighbors, or have an experience where you could walk to something, you know, in between dance class and after school before dinner that you could never do in another place. Awesome. All right. I'm going to shift it back to you. And this is probably not so interesting to you, but I can tell you it's super interesting to other people who are at kind of the point in in your career story, they feel like they're in the same place where they think it's time to make a move or a change, and they're just super hesitant, unsure of how this is all 
supposed to work. So again, even though it, it might not seem super interesting to you, talk about how you ended up finding Charter or they found you and kind yeah. of what that looked like. Okay, great. So like I said, I was working at Ryan and there was a gentleman who used to come and visit me all the time. He uh, he ended up being the director of land acquisition for Charter. So he would go out and do his, his shops and you know, we sort of struck up a relationship where I knew when he, when I saw him pull up that he was going to be asking me for sales numbers. And he was literally the Mm -hmm. only person I knew who worked at Charter. So when I made the decision that I wanted to move and get out of big builder land, I called him and I was like, Hey, uh, if I'm going to stay in this industry, there's only one place I want to work. I didn't know why I wanted to work there at the time. I just knew that everything I had seen of Charter in where I lived, I was like, there's something a little bit different and special about this place. So I'm just going to call this guy Steve that I know. <laughs> so he That's was awesome. like, Oh, Hey, yeah. Um, well, and well, let me back up for anybody who's looking to make a move. So I'm like that person who follows the rules through all of life. If it, if it hasn't been written out in a manual for me, like what the next step is, I, I don't do it. <laughs> and I had a friend of mine who I worked with who I was like, yeah, I'm thinking about you know, making this call, but I'm, I'm terrified. And she literally was like, Lauren, just do it. Like, stop being scared. And I'm telling mm-hmm. this story because I know everybody sits there and doubts themselves. And yep. I literally had to like, work up the courage to make the phone call seems so silly. But it was one of those really like, transformative moments in my career where I'm like, I look back and I'm like, I was just making a phone call. What did I have to lose? But it <laughs> felt like the world was ending. Because yeah, I was going to ask somebody for something. So, um, That's awesome. yeah, so I reached out to him and he was like, oh yeah, I'll get you a meeting with the owner of the company. And I'm like, whoa, uh, all right. So <laughs> yeah, I'm like, okay, I guess I'm in this now. Uh, cool. So then I had to figure out like what I was pitching and you know, why I wanted to come right. work there. There wasn't like an open position. So I'm like, how does this even work? I didn't know. It was just, I don't know. And so, also PS that I, I think that's the best time to reach out to someone is when they're not posting a position. That seems counterintuitive as well. But my dad told me from the time I graduated college, he's like, don't apply to, to job postings. Like you want someone to create that position for you to exist. So I think that's just another, like, like you said, don't be nervous just because there isn't a job posting listed. If you're yeah, motivated, absolutely. You give them a call. It absolutely ended up being, you know, sort of just the, that moment that shifted me into my career trajectory. And, you know, so I met with Rob Bowman, who's the owner of the company. Um, You know, he was sort of like, uh, well, what do you do? And, you know, what's your experience? And what do you want to do? And I think I said something ridiculous, like, I want to run your marketing team. And he kind of looked at me. And I was like, well, I mean, not today. I mean, I was I clearly wasn't qualified to do that then. But my degree was in marketing and I'd been in sales for a long time. And I knew that was the part of the company I wanted to get into. And then, like I said, I had the opportunity to do a bunch of random stuff before. So I sort of, you know, made that my resume and I'm like, I could do this for you and I could do that. And I could do online sales. And I see that you have this set up and I could make it be this other thing. And so anyway, we left this meeting and I drove home and I called my husband and I'm like, I don't think this is going to work out. And I don't know. I just, I, I, I feel like there's, you know, there's nothing here for me. And then Rob called me back a couple of days later and he was like, why don't you come back in? So I was like, okay. So we had another interview where again, we just sort of like chatted for an hour. It was really odd, but I just kind of threw it. Out. I had nothing to lose. So I was just 
you know, telling him all the things about myself that I thought was going to, you know, was going to make a difference. And then he ended up offering me a job. It was sort of like a non-job job where he was like, hey, come work for us. I think my title was marketing specialist, but it, there was no job description. And I sort of showed up and I just did random things for like the first 18 months I was there. I worked with Steve, who was the land acquisition director doing CMAs. Another girl who worked there and I called the entire database, which was 9,000 people to set appointments for the sales team. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. I mean, like I just floated around and found stuff to do until they were like, okay, here's a real job for you, <laughs> which was in marketing. <laughs> um, so I, people there today are like, you did what? Because we're, we're much different of a company now. We're much uh-huh. more structured. But at that time, they were just sort of trying to figure out, you know, how to maneuver out of the downturn. I think he saw an opportunity for me to, you know, be on the marketing team or influence sales in some way, but just didn't know what it was and gave me a shot. And I just had to take it and run with it um, and find my way through the company. So it was super, it's super random. So then 2010 to roughly middle of 2014, you're rising through on the marketing end, going from just online marketing and, and digital marketing to director of marketing of the entire company. So what you promised him, you you wanted to do. Yeah, sort <laughs> of happened. Nice. That happened. <laughs> and then the first of, a, of something that people who have listened to a couple of our interviews will see is the, a pattern that is emerging. You've been in sales, you've been in marketing, and then transition in June of 2014 to VP of sales and marketing. So talk to me about that transition, how comfortable did it feel? Any surprises that in terms of how how it was to to be leading a team of sales yeah. professionals as well as doing marketing? That was probably the the most challenging transition I've had in my career. While I had experience in sales, um, and then I'd work my way up through marketing, taking over the sales team at that point was just a territory that I was unfamiliar with. We did have a director of sales at the time too. So it's not like I was even directly managing the sales team. Mm -hmm. And the entire team knew me as like Lauren from marketing. Uh, I think half (laughs) of them didn't even know that I was the director of marketing at that point. And what was happening in the business right then was we were putting together a sales process, like a sales presentation and training everybody on it. So I had sort of been involved in that in marketing because we were tying in all the point of sale stuff and the retail experience. And once we started building the sales process was at the same time that I was transitioning to taking over both sides of, um, of sales and marketing. So not only was I learned from marketing, but uh, now I was trying to tell these salespeople to sell this way instead of their Uh way. Everything that they knew was changing because we were building a tremendous amount of infrastructure in the business to be able to support that. So it was just sort of a really chaotic transition for a lot of the people on the team. And then you, you have to go through this whole like, you know, be a boss, not a buddy thing, which was yeah really challenging. And again, when you're young and I was responsible, I think for maybe like two or three people on the marketing team, but going from that to then having a director of sales. And I think at that point we had maybe like 15 salespeople. I'm like, I had no idea what I was doing <laughs> like at all. And I That's probably, made, yeah. And I probably made every mistake you actually can make as a leader 
But it was that time in my career where I was like, okay, well, this is it. This is, these are the circumstances. And I see where we're trying to go. I clearly need to build some of my skill sets. So I'm just going to figure this out. And I started reaching out to people that I knew who led people. That's when I really dove into, you know, sort of self-study and realized that I could take my commute and um, use it with learning and audiobooks and training myself and going to classes and signing up for things. And that was really a pivotal moment for me because you're, I don't know, growing up in school, everyone's like, here's the stuff you have to learn. And then even when you're, you know, a performing team member on a company, usually people are handing things to you and they're like, this is what you do. Then all of a sudden you're responsible for leading other people and there's no handbook or manual for that. So, uh, you know, really diving into those things was you know, something that I, I keep having to continue to learn, but it's that like every next level that you want to, you know, achieve requires a new version of you that that was sort of like the quote that, you know, helped change my perspective for what I was doing and what I had to do moving forward. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that even though we don't talk a lot, every time we do, it's very easy and natural is because we have a lot of shared experiences right around this point in your career. And one of the things I want to highlight is that if you have the right skill set, attitude, and drive, and you're humble, and the owner of the company or other folks above you realize that, they will find ways to help you. So just like you were describing, like there was a director of sales in place, and without that person being there, it probably would have been even more of a rocky road oh, because sure. there was that extra buffer. But, and, and a lot of people would say, well, that doesn't make sense. Like, can I even become a VP of sales and marketing and still have someone doing what you would think the VP of sales is in charge of doing? Absolutely. If, if people see that opportunity and they see that long-term investment, they'll do that. And the same thing happened with me when I became VP of sales and marketing, I had three regional sales managers and those were really the ones that I was managing most of the time. It was really about process creation creating a sales uh, training program internally, consistency, CRM rollout, the online sales stuff. But it was, I was using the process-oriented part of my marketing skill set and helping apply it to sales. But if there was, if those three regional sales managers weren't there, forget it. I couldn't, yeah. it would have been a joke to call me the VP of sales and marketing. I, I totally agree. And the director of sales then, we still work together. Her name's Kelly. She She's like my Bible. I would call her and I'm like, how do we do this? And what is this thing for? And what do we do when this happens? And I mean, yeah, she was absolutely a a lifeline. And I think that's, you know, one of the big lessons is just to use the people around you, especially as you're moving up in your career. A lot of times you end up being, you know, very autonomous and you rely on yourself for a lot of stuff. But the more you realize that you have a network of people around you who are willing to help and, you know, you will repay the favor at some point just using them when they're willing to help you and, and helping to get new perspectives for things and learn stuff that you didn't know is just the the most valuable tool you could possibly have. So I have four kids. Andrew has three. Mm -hmm. You have two, right? When did you start having children and, and how did that (laughs) whole extra piece uh, fall in? Like what time period of all this happening? Yeah. Was that, was that, happening. So that's really funny that you bring that up. So I had my daughter. So my kids right now are 10 and eight. So I had my daughter when, before I came to charter, actually, when I started with charter, it was like a couple weeks before she turned one. And then I had my son a little over two years later while I was doing online sales for charter. So 
when all this transition in my career was happening, this, you know, sort of like really steep trajectory into leadership, I had babies and toddlers and (laughs) my husband works full time. He works for Amazon. So, I mean, that's a little bit crazy as well. And he's also on a crazy, you know, management trajectory. So I just, I look back and I'm like, what was I doing? Like, how did I... (laughs) Do yeah, I'm not saying that. Amazon's a bad place to work, but they're not the the street. The word on the street about Amazon is that you work hard. You, you work so and, hard. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. He's not volunteering for a whole bunch of extra kid duty. It doesn't No, no. <laughs> exactly. And so it was just a constant dance of, you know, who has what child and which one's sick and are we at daycare on time? And I can't even tell you the amount of times that I was racing from work to the daycare. So I would get there before my 10 hours was up. So they don't, cause they charge you a dollar a minute when you get, when you get there late. I mean, these oh are things my. you have to worry about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was just, it was just all at once. You're just in this full dead sprint of life, you know, having a young family and growing your career and, you know, sort of feeling like you don't know what you're doing, but figuring it out as you go. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, then a couple of years later, I sort of like had the opportunity to slow down and look around and be like, where am I running to? But yeah, it was absolutely a crazy, crazy time. And and I think that's probably why I was able to get so much accomplished because you're just busy. You know, you just, you just keep going. Um, you yeah, don't you don't know any, you don't know any better. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's right. So then the most recent transition from VP of sales to division president, which is again, something that I went through as well. It's a whole different thing to be managing and doing things that are, you know, in sales and marketing, you're seeing the results on a daily, weekly, or at, at the very least monthly basis. And sometimes as a division president, while there's certainly sales and closing metrics and things going on, it's a whole different ball game. You're talking yeah. about not, they're not being this amazing leadership management manual that perfectly applies to our industry in these roles, which is, which is true. But then when it comes to like, did you have to start being involved in construction and warranty and all these other things? Or how does that position look at, at charter? Yeah. So, I mean, luckily enough, I'm still very attached to the sales part of the organization. So I still, you know, directly manage sales, even though I'm the division president. But yeah, it it just opens up a world to things that I never had access to. We still have a VP of home building. We have a VP of neighborhood development. We have a new VP of marketing. So I work with all these people closely. But yeah, all of a sudden now these deal sheets are coming across my desk and we're talking about variances and purchasing and a whole bunch of stuff where I was like, you know, sort of adjacent to it. What dollar level variance do you have to sign off on? Uh, that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly like, I was like, what is all this stuff? Like, what are the parameters for this? Who's in charge of this? So yeah, it just opened up a whole bunch of questions where I'm like, should I be looking at this if it has $10 on it or $5,000 on it? I don't know. <laughs> What's happening? What what needs my my authority signature? And what am I authorizing? And yeah, and then it just puts another level between you and the, the home buyer where you know, as a, when you're a VP of something uh, or even a director of something, you know, you only get people when they're angry. Like when you're a division president, you get them when they're really angry. And so <laughs> yes. you know, you're know, you you're like six weeks removed now instead of like two weeks removed from the problem. So I'm like, oh, this is fun. Now we have to figure out how to solve hmm. these problems in a different way. But yeah, yep. like when I thought I had 
figured out sort of not, I didn't know everything, but I felt like I had a good rhythm on how to learn the new things. Then you just open up this other world. And I'm like, Oh, okay. There's a whole nother dynamic to this because now you're working with a bunch of people who are sort of senior level executives and your ability to influence and, you know, manage projects becomes just that much more difficult because these people are all running large parts of the organization as well. So that's super fun too. Two of the things that I thought would be fun to highlight that which you mentioned as well is no one can prepare you for the customer interactions at that level. There's again, certainly no manual at all for that. There's, there's general principles of how to treat customers, but it's a whole nother game of Sherlock Holmes trying to figure out where did we break down internally that causes this to happen? Can we fix it? Should we fix it? Do you give them a puppy to say sorry? Do you just <laughs> fix the problem? Are you making your internal team frustrated when you do capitulate to the yeah. customer, even though you think that's truly the right thing to do? You know, there's just all this stuff floating around that no one can prepare you for at all. That is right. And, and you don't know the right answer and you have to make some mistakes. You have to sort of break stuff to see how it works, right? Mm-hmm. And the problem is when you break things, the, the ripple effect becomes very a lot greater than it was before. And I think that was, you know, one of the biggest things that I've learned, one of the biggest lessons I've learned throughout um, progressing in my career is that every next level that you take, the scrutiny at which you're watched that you don't even know about is just so high. And so whether you're taking action or you're not taking action, you know, everyone is watching everything you do all the time. And that can become really overwhelming when you're trying to do your best and, you know, you're trying to make the right decisions for everybody. And, you know, sometimes you're on a timeline where you may not be able to have the time to gather all the information you want to make a decision. And, you know, I've been guilty of making the no decision for a while because I was unsure of what to do. And that's just, that's sometimes just as bad or even worse. So, Yeah. yeah, I mean, you just have to be really cognizant of that. People really look to you for guidance and the vibe you're giving off and, and all those things. And so it's like, you can have a bad day if your kids are sick and you know, you know, you, you had an aggressive driver on the way to work and your audio book didn't work and you you had a bad hair day. Like you can't let that show because then people are like, Oh my God, the company's in trouble. And I'm like, no, I'm just having a bad day. (laughs) I just had a bad day. Yeah, I feel like it's like your your mom and dad and now I have all these kids watching you like with my little ones like when did I say that because obviously you picked that up for me like I I had no idea yeah and I like you're saying it's unfair to the people that you're going to the next meeting with to carry over the vibe from the previous interaction so you've got to learn how to take like a mental shower real quick because Mm -hmm. you know you could be going into a start meeting where everything's good starts are in process whatever but you just show up you know, cause you got screamed at for a half hour and maybe spit on by a homeowner and you're running into the start meeting, but you've got to pretend like, you know, that just didn't happen mentally and come in with that, the right energy for that situation. Yeah. It's not fair to those people to carry it with you. No, it's, it's really not. And I think once you can sort of wrap your brain around the fact that the role you play is just so different. It's not about what you do as much anymore. It's really about how you do it and how you interact with people and your job as a leader of people and a manager of people and the person, you know, quote unquote, responsible for things is really just managing energy and, you know, making sure that people are in the right headspace to do their best work. And once you can sort of like let go of your own personal performance and just embrace the fact that you're there to mostly hold space for other people. It becomes a really amazing vantage point to look at the world 
and look at business because it's not a place that a lot of people, you know, get to have the amount of impact that you can have. And I think a lot of people miss the opportunity because they're stuck in their own sort of personal performance and not getting that like validation that you got when you were able to like hand in work and your boss say, good job. Like you don't, you don't hand in, you know, I made an impact in that one-on-one conversation with that person, or I, I left a lasting impression based on something I said, like, sometimes you don't ever know that stuff, but it really is a cool thing to be able to do if you can approach it the right way. Yeah, absolutely. So (laughs) when, uh, when do you become CEO or kind of what's the next, it sounds like you're obviously enjoying what you're doing now. Is there a challenge that you ever find yourself of thinking like, what's next? Is, does there need to be a next? Is this okay? to kind of stay here for the rest of my career in terms of that position. I just wonder as someone who's kind of moved up, because if we go back from 2004, when you started with uh, Ryan Holmes to 2017, when you're the division president, 2016, that's pretty fast movement. Does it ever Mm -hmm. feel like you need to create some next thing for yourself? Does it stress you out mentally at times? Or you can say, shut up. That's all too personal. No, like, so have you been (laughs) reading my journal? That's really funny. The last really year for me has been asking myself all those questions. And like I said, it felt like life was a sprint for a really long time. And I know a lot of people experience that because you're just trying to get to the next level, trying to get to the next level, trying to get to the next level. And then there was a point in time where I was sort of like, well, you know, it well, and I didn't, I didn't reference this before, but all the positions I've held at Charter didn't exist before I held them. So I've been very lucky mm. to just do the work and be rewarded in opportunity in front of me. But, you know, we're not, a, we're not a huge builder. We're a regional builder. We have two divisions and, you know, we have a growth plan for sure. But in terms of roles in the company, like that's pretty much it. And so, yeah, I, I asked myself that and I'm like, well, why would I need the next step? And what would that give me? And it really started me on a different journey in terms of defining success and, and what that mm-hmm. looks like. Um, I went to a training class a couple of years ago. It's uh, Dr. Jerry Bell is the trainer. He's really an interesting, smart fellow. If you guys look him up. Um, yeah, and it, was a, it was a leadership training. And on the, la- on the last day, he asked a couple of questions just for everybody to sort of look at and internally grade themselves on where they were. And one of the questions he asked for us to look at was, do you believe you're successful? And it was one of those moments in my life where like in the movies, the whole world sort of stops around you and you can't hear anything that's going on. Like that literally happened to me. I'm like, that's just in the movies. No, it actually happened. It stopped (laughs) me right in my tracks. And I'm like, I have no idea what my definition of success is. I've been, you know, on this path doing other people's definition of success or society's definition of success. But I'm like, I don't really know what that feels like for me. And so, yes, yeah, a great question. At this point, like the titles never really mattered to me. I just always wanted to feel like I was moving forward, being challenged mm-hmm. and learning new things. And, you know, the more I think about it, that's what's important to me. And, you know, I spoke a little bit about having little kids and just the craziness of life that that is. And I'll tell you when you, when your kids get to the place where they're like in the the age of my kids are eight and 10 and, and plus, 
it's a whole new ball game while you're not, you know, wiping butts and noses and making sure people are fed and, you know, not jumping into traffic. It's like a whole nother set (laughs) of stuff that you have to kind of manage where you're shaping sort of their foundation of how their life is going to be, but you, Mm -hmm. you do it through words and actions. And so that's actually been really challenging in a different and new way. How do you take this role you know, a high responsibility in a business where you're managing energy for the people that you're responsible for at work and then do the same thing at home and have anything left, you know, in your tank by the end of the day. So that was, sorry, sometimes I can monologue. With that being said, so to answer your question, I think that I'm good here because there's still a ton left to learn. I don't need another title. If one comes about, great. But, you know, there's still a lot to accomplish. And I think that this gives me an opportunity to sit in that space and find, you know, that last 20% to see how can we really make life and work and the lives of people around you just even that much more better, that much more better. (laughs) It makes total sense. I think when you were talking about your time as the field sales admin for Ryan, you're kind of exploring and going there's, once you reach a certain level, it's okay to remind yourself that that growth may not always continue in the exact position clearly defined that you're doing. You know, you figured out how to do that role, do it well, build a team around you, move forward. But also it's okay to realize there might be a period of time where you're going to expand and and invest that time in family or uh, working with a nonprofit. I mean, a lot of what um, I, I found when I'm not talking about marketing is about career progression and that intentionality of, oh my gosh, I'm wildly successful beyond where I thought I would be this fast in my career. But did I choose all that? And is it still what I would choose? And, mm-hmm. and how do I course adjust? And so I think it's awesome that you're in this place where you can kind of have some extra time to take a breath and look around and re-decide where to put that extra 10% in from here. Yeah. And if I could give advice to anybody who's listening, you know, in whatever stage of career they're in, I'd I'd advise you to try to do that where you're at now. You know, if I could talk to my younger self, I would just try to look around a little bit more where I was instead of just straight forward. And I think I would have gotten a lot more out of, you know, that time and and just the people around me and the things that I could have learned from them because that's really where you get the most benefit. So I'm I'm very grateful to have that perspective now. But um, you know, I hope it's a lesson for people to just you can do that wherever you're at in life. See, I've been telling you for six months or so now that this would be very easy and amazing for everyone listening, and it has been. So thanks so much for (laughs) coming on. Well, thank you for having me. You are an awesome example. And I I know it's always weird when people say nice things to you in front of you, but you're an awesome example of how to do it and and do it well and have great results, but also just, you know, play the game the right way. So thanks, Kevin. That's very nice of you. I appreciate it. Thanks again for for coming on. And if you want to connect with Lauren on uh, social media, we'll we'll put uh, links in the show notes to her LinkedIn profile. You can connect with her there and and say hello. Perfect. Thanks so much to Lauren for hopping on with us and being so transparent and honest about her journey and the struggles and the things that you have to adapt to as you grow in your career. I 
pretty confident that a whole bunch of people are going to be reaching out to you, Lauren. Uh, so just yeah. keep hitting accept on LinkedIn, despite everything we said at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> just accept them all. That's right. Last week's question of the week was, what percentage of the chats that happen on your website are usefully moving the buying process along or are a true lead? So just a quick pulse check from online salespeople in particular or marketers if they felt like they had the pulse. But all of our answers uh, that we got back were from online salespeople, which is awesome because they're the ones having the actual chat that is conversations. True. And what did people have to say? Jennifer Walsh said 90% are actually true leads. The other 10% are homeowners with their warranty troubles. <laughs> going back to her, I'm sure she has a, uh, a templated, go over here for warranty. They'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking through right now. Corey, see, she says, I love chat. I was very against it a few years ago, but after using it for three years, I love it. So she says 70 to 90% are real prospects. Oh, wow. Wow. And then uh, Martha, she says, uh, I'll summarize it. It looks like she turns on chat after they send out mass emails. So when she is expecting more conversations, it's probably easier for her to handle a lot more people at one time right afterwards having chat on there. Yeah. I think the most surprising thing, uh, and we've got a couple other responses, but for the sake of time, go to the Facebook group and, and look at those. The thing that's interesting to me is the frontline people who are saying, hey, these are real people. Now, if you go back and listen to the episode with Mike and Jen, right, just because they're real people doesn't mean that it's an efficient use of time, but it does kind of help give insight into this concept that some people have of people chatting are just the ones who are hiding and they're not really that interested. That's not necessarily the case. And, and we talked through those reasons, but it was encouraging to hear that in general, the people who have it say that it is of value. And then there were a couple people like like Heidi Schroeder and Martha who are like, we either, we either don't do it or we kind of do it. And we're really looking forward to hearing more, which by this point you have, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> I heard that episode. All right. Uh, this week's new question of the week is, do you know someone who should work for Do You Convert? Ooh. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, I bum, love bum. it. I yeah. love so it. The madness continues. This has never been the plan, but we need more of you. <laughs> we need we need more of you because there are a lot. And, and also, I should probably say this is when we say we're here to help you and not to sell you. We do a really good job of this, apparently, because we had uh, <laughs> three people in the last week and a half who reached out to us about some kind of quasi random question. And they're like, oh, we didn't realize that you guys do uh, digital marketing for builders. Oh, we didn't know you do. You know, we're like, that's all we do, you know, <laughs> digital marketing, online sales for home builders and, and then coaching and training behind it. So there's that, but, but people want and, and are asking for more of it. So the question is, do you know someone who should work for Do You Convert? Now we, we have kind of two general needs. We've, we've got some great technical talent on the team, but we need to expand some additional folks who have home builder experience. So uh, one position would be someone who's been with a builder for two to four years you don't have to be technically proficient, know what buttons to push in Facebook and Google necessarily. We will teach you that over time. This is, a, this is for someone who wants to transition in and have a really long-term growth trajectory, but we're going to teach you everything we need you to know. But you have to really know home builders and have that experience in there and, and marketing as a general idea. And then the other one is going to be even more fun for us to find is someone to do more of what Kevin Oakley does on a regular basis, which is hop on and talk to people in, in a coaching and strategy situation. You know, it's, it's, we're going to be extremely picky, choosy, 
in, in the right way for that. Uh, and then we know it's a, it's a unique individual who has the experience, who, who has actually done both the technical and the strategic side of digital marketing uh, in a home building company, but definitely can't replicate that in terms of me finding a way to just create more time myself. So we have all sorts of opportunities for those. We just need you to let us know. You don't have to put their name, by the way. In fact, please don't. <laughs> we'll just do a yes or no. Uh, don't tag people. Yeah. Tell them somewhere else. We don't We don't need that happening. Just do you know someone who should work for doyouconvert.com? Yes or no? I'm excited to we'll see. keep you updated. We're last month. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, yeah we are. Great. We are a great... We're, we're like our little family. That's what we always you say. You don't have to move. You can work from a home office or uh, a WeWork location if you like. <laughs> Wherever you want. Uh, no, no more commuting. You get to... So nice. If you are the type of person who goes to the Builder Show or PCBC or our event and comes back sad because you don't get to interact with other builders on a regular basis and you really like uh, new home marketing or online sales and what you do, that's a good sign that this would be a great fit for you. Because you know, every day I get to talk to, to four or five different folks yeah. who, who are doing it every day in and that's out. That's all and... you will do. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, all for, forever. Potentially. And ever, potentially. And ever. All right. That'll awesome. do it for this awesome. week. For published articles, blog posts, videos, and more, check out doyouconvert.com. It's also the best way to find out how to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and everywhere else we are online. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time. Next Bye. time. See ya.